0: This evening is going to be a little bit different because tonight both Jeremy and I will be speaking. And uh, there's two reasons for that. One is that we believe in offering you good value for money. So everyone prefers two two messages rather than one, don't they? So um, the other reason, the more important reason, is that um, because we're dealing with a really critical and sensitive subject, um, we felt like it would be really helpful to hear both of our voices on this subject Uh, And also, particularly for Jeremy to share his story, uh, which is an extraordinary story and it just so wonderfully will bring to life the things that I'm going to be speaking into uh, for the first half here. So our theme is that we're considering, as the last part in our five-week series on Love, Sex and Relationships, we're going to be thinking this evening about sexuality, and uh, particularly as it relates to, to the gospel and uh, I, want to just, I, I want to just lay down something of a, a framework for you uh, and hopefully pave the ground a little bit for Jeremy just to, uh, to speak to you on his story and, and give some teaching through that. He did such a wonderful job this morning. I know you guys are in for a treat. This issue, um, the issue of sexuality, I think is both uh, very simple and very complex at the same time. And uh, on the one hand, it seems to me that there's a simplicity to to understanding the Christian teaching on this issue. Um, it seems that many people make it complicated, uh, and not least because Christians stand in a spectrum of belief across on the issue of how Christians should, um, uh, their posture towards and their understanding of and the handling of the issues is, it varies massively. And you have on the one hand, you have the kind of, Um, westboro baptists who who hold the signs you know god hates fags and the and all the damage that's been brought on the back of that at the other end of the spectrum and even in our in our part of london you'll see a number of churches that will will uh, quite happily fly the rainbow flag in the name of uh, inclusion because i said look jesus was all about inclusion and therefore um, all these lifestyles are welcome and permitted and even encouraged within the church of jesus christ and there seems to be a a, a, comp, a complexity that's come in because Christians can't agree. And that's, that's problematic, and it's one of the reasons why we need to speak into this. But I actually want to say to you, I think that this is actually quite a simple issue on, on many levels. However, the complexity comes in because of the emotional aspect of this. That we're talking here about something which um, requires all of us, and particularly those of you who... Um, for whom it, it, it touches your life more personally, either in your own life or someone near to you. It requires an enormous uh, amount of trust in the God whom we are speaking about. And I want to speak into both of these aspects. I want on the first hand just to lay out to you why I think uh, the Bible's very clear on this and uh, we 're going to get right in there and i 'm just going to just launch in with some of the what I think of the the biblical perspective on this issue, but after that, I want to then lay down some of the reasons why I think you can go away um, with a deep confidence in in God and his goodness and this is going to be important for you for those of you who yourself have struggled with our, or n- know the reality of same sex attraction and desire in your life then Obviously, that you're going to be interested in what we have to say on this. Um, There are also those of you who are not Christians, and I'm conscious that for many people in our society at large, one of the great obstacles to faith is the question: Well, how do I believe in the God of the Bible or in the God of Christianity when it would seem to be so? uh, It seems that the teachings of this faith are so opposed to to um, some of my most deeply held beliefs, and that may be something you've you've struggled with. And I hope that we can we can we can hopefully remove that as an obstacle this evening, in a, or at least pave the way for you to look at Jesus Himself rather than have your vision obscured by this particular issue. And for most of us, uh, you're Christian, and yet you know that as part of your Christian discipleship, your call is to to be willing and ready to share something of your faith with others, because we are we are the Christian faith is given away. That is. It's built into its very DNA, and yet you would find it difficult to speak about your faith with friends, not least because of this particular issue. And you'll understand, you know, when, when uh, in, P- in 1 Peter, Peter says that the Christians should um, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. It's very interesting that when he says that, he's not actually talking about intellectual problems. He's not talking about philosophical problems. He's not talking about... Defending the scriptures and whether they were from God and all those kinds of things. What Peter is talking about in that instance is the problem those Christians faced, which was that they were it was they were being criticised for their lifestyle. In the world in which they existed, there was all kinds of um, what we would describe as kind of illicit uh, practices, things which. Which God has said, No, I don't want you to live this way. And the Christians have distinguished themselves from the wider society, were seeking to live holy lives, and as a result, were despised and maligned and hated by the people around them. Which is why, in that exact same passage, Peter says, If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, in other words, if you should suffer because people look at you and they think, What are you all about? Why are you so up yourselves? Why do you think you should act differently from the rest of us? What's wrong with you as Christians? He says, If you suffer for that reason, He says, you shouldn't have fear. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Be prepared to make a defense. And I'm utterly convinced that when you understand the pattern through which we can handle an issue like this, then the tools that you get in your hands will be useful in a wide array of circumstances where you have to say, listen, this is why we live the way we do and why we believe the way we believe and practice the way we practice as Christians. So let me begin then by outlining for you what the Bible has to say on this subject. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And the answer, the simple and straightforward answer is that the Bible has a very, very consistent, from page one all the way through to the end, commitment to holy sexuality. And by which I mean either that you are called and find yourself in the life of being a single person, it's one thing we've been talking about in recent weeks, in which you will you will seek to maintain a heart that is devoted to the Lord and as much as it is possible, diminish lust, lustful desire in that heart. Or you will find yourself in a committed marriage relationship, man and woman, according to the biblical pattern. And that means that the Bible is not actually overly interested in homosexuality as a reality. It was going on in the ancient world all the way through times of the scriptures. But there's not many passages that talk about it. Now, it's very clear when it does talk about it, but there's not a kind of obsessive interest in this because it was just one option among many, many, many ways in which people could deviate from the plan which God had set. And the same is true today. It is, it is an important subject, but it's also one which, you know, it's just, it's just one thing among many in which we can see that there are, there are ways that you can go off the course that God has set for us as, as his people So, what does the Bible say? And I think you can look at the pattern like this. Uh, There are three passages I just want to quickly point out to you. Um, And you know that the biblical storyline, as many people capture it in, in three sort of chapters or phases, they talk about creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. God creating a perfect world. The fall being what sin has done to us and is the, the kind of havoc that sin is wreaking in our lives as a result of our turning away from God. And then redemption in terms of what Jesus, how Jesus is lifting us out. And the three passages that I want you to think about actually fall into those three categories. First you have Genesis 1 and 2. The creation of humankind and the gift of marriage. And for some of you, you might dismiss this passage and think, well, what relevance does it have to us? But, listen, Jesus based his entire ethic of marriage upon what God had established in Genesis 1 and 2. That the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. For Jesus, in his own theology of marriage, this passage was utterly foundational. So, it's not just that the new Genesis passage is describing what's normal But rather, it's describing what is normative, which is to say, right at the start of the scripture, the creation picture, the design that God set in place was the pattern of what he wanted humans to enjoy for the rest of history. That's how I view Genesis. And it's only in the light, by the way, of man and woman and the complementarity of man and woman given in Genesis that you can then understand the rest of the storyline of the Bible in which you see God and the church united in that same kind of covenant relationship of love, Christ and his bride. The pattern of Christ and his bride, in fact, I'd say marriage is given to preach to us about the relationship of Jesus and his church. And a kind of distortion of what marriage is in Genesis weakens the, the prophetic power of the image of what marriage is and how it's given. So there you have the creation's passage. Then you, you, you whip th- forward through the scriptures and you, you begin to see the result of fall. What happens to us in every aspect of our our lives as sin comes in and brings cracks and ruin and breakdown? And one of the things that it breaks is our our experience of sexuality and of our our sex lives. This is all the way through the Bible. There are lots of places we could go. But I think possibly the most powerful and searching of them all is Paul's articulation of the problem in Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans is possibly the most influential piece of literature that has ever been written. And it begins with a kind of analysis and a um, almost a diagnosis of the human condition. And really what he's describing to you is the, the havoc that has been wreaked upon humanity by our own sin. And he shows you the kind of progression of sin, what happens through the fall. He begins with, by describing that it starts with an with, with not worshipping God and turning from God to idolatry. And then he starts to show all the ways that, that our turning away from God begins to erode our humanity and change us and warp us in various ways. And as he's progressing through his description of what has happened as a result of people turning away from God and their love for him and an ability to worship him. He gets to these verses in Romans 1:26 and 27, where he specifically talks about the issue of homosexuality as a fruit. Of turning away from God. And he puts it like this. He says for this reason. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships. Uh, relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise. Gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So, so far we've, we've begun to see. How the pattern is playing out. You have this creation image. The perfect image of the man and the woman in the garden. Then you have how sin has wreaked havoc on all of our lives and damaged us in ways that we are not even fully aware of. And one of the ways is that as we, as we stray from God, we want to give ourselves over to desires that actually end up damaging us and people around us. The fall. The last passage I want you to think about is this one in 1 Corinthians 6, which is where we're going to dwell for the rest of our time. Which is where you begin to see Christ breaking in in the power of redemption. How he is seeking to undo the power of sin in our lives to rebuild what was broken at the start. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6 it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You can imagine at that point, you remember how Jeremy last week was describing to us the city of Corinth and how this was in many ways the cesspit of the Roman Empire in terms of the ways that, that people were just, there were just scallywags all over the place and it was like just a crazy, crazy city. And you can imagine these guys in church, they were hearing Paul's letter read to them by the pastor and as he's reading it out and he's listing all the things that these guys were into, they're all like looking at each other and being like, yeah, that was you, yeah, that was you, that was me, definitely. And he says, but such was some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Bible speaks very, very clearly to this issue, tells us that God's pattern was different to what we think. It was man and woman in marriage or single people living a pure and, and chaste life. Fall brought about the damaging of our desires as much as anything. But as Christ comes in through the power of the gospel, he's redeeming us from life and lifestyles that he is offended by in order to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Why do Christians disagree then? If the biblical teaching is that plain, and friends, it is that plain. Why is it that Christians find themselves in disagreement about this, as they often do? And I, I, you know, there are lots of, I could give you a historical narrative of why that is the case, and we're not going to go there. But I think the simple, the simple answer, and this is a thing which Jesus was encountering all the time when you read the Gospels, is what Jeremiah says, where he says that the heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, we have, it's not just that we read the text of the Bible and, it, and we, we just take it as read but rather that we bring to the Bible all of the inclinations, motivations, passions and intentions of our own hearts and then seek to read it through those eyes. Now to some degree this is inevitable for all of us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to read God's word clearly and for it to have a changing impact on our lives. We do. All of us do. But nevertheless there is the capacity in the human heart to twist and distort what you are reading. To find ways around it. And in fact. And I think this is what you're seeing in the life of Jesus. When he criticizes. uh, Particularly the Pharisees. What you see is. That it's a legalistic tendency. To see what's written in God's word. And then to try and find a way around it. Now legalism takes a couple of forms. Sometimes it's. It's an obsession with what you can't do. This is all the list of things that you are not allowed to do. But. The flip side to the coin of legalism is it's also an obsession with trying to find a way around those things. And the characteristic reality of somebody who has a legalistic reading of scripture is that they are not only obsessed with what is right and wrong, but they're all also obsessed with finding ways of, 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 uh, of minimizing the impact upon their own life. And so when people take the Bible and they try and twist it on these, this particular issue, and, and they often do it in the name of grace. Like, Jesus is all about grace, and so he's all about acceptance, he's all about love, and therefore, don't worry, he wants, you, he wants you to just feel affirmed in the way you want to live your life. That's how it's often articulated. What that is, is actually a form of legalism masquerading as grace. And we need to wake up to that reality. Christopher Yuan, who is a... Um, an American-Asian, uh, I think he's actually a pastor now, who, who has written books on not only on his story of coming from a, a gay background to believing in Jesus and all that Jesus did in his life, but has also written about the theology of this. He says, we live in a world of countless shades of gray, not just 50. Ambiguity is the innocuous but nefarious overture to false teaching. I'll read that again. Ambiguity. In other words, bringing in, oh, does it really say? And how confusing this is actually. If you look at the words, and does it really mean that? Ambiguity is the innocuous but nefarious. In other words, death bringing overture to false teaching. And he goes on and says, Thus we must welcome every opportunity to lovingly communicate that biblical morality is unsurprisingly and beautifully black and white. And he's... He's made choices that reflect those convictions. My concern when I'm talking about this kind of issue, and it's not just this. There's many issues like it for where Christians are divided. Is that what we want to do is we want to take our faith and we want to reform it along lines that are more preferential to us. But the problem is that what you end up with is not Christianity but an idolatry of your own creation. Because the Christian faith is given, it's a gift, it's a given to us by God. When you take what's given, turn it into something different, you end up with an idol. This was really powerfully articulated by a gay atheist journalist. uh, Back in the 2000s, actually, uh, when the the Church of England was uh, debating the whole question of whether they should appoint gay bishops in in the Anglican church and uh, Matthew Paris actually wrote an article in which he he opposed this vehemently surprisingly right given his own personal life choices but he, he put it like this and I couldn't really improve on this he said it's wrong for people to modify their faith and moral beliefs from a fear of becoming isolated you know that fear you just want to accommodate to the age He said it's time that convinced Christians stop trying to reconcile their spiritual beliefs with the modern age and understand that if one thing comes across clearly through every account we have of Jesus' teaching, it's that his followers are not urged to accommodate themselves to their age, but rather to align their mind to God. Preach it, brother. (laughs) Christianity is not supposed to feel comfortable, he says, or feel natural, or inclusive, or moderate, or even sensible. He says, the church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing. If you have established that this is what the Bible teaches, and the God who has spoken has said to us very clearly, listen... I want you to live this way and not that way. The bigger and more difficult question, the more challenging question is, well, how can you accept that? Either because you need to accept it in order to communicate it to others or because you yourself find yourself in a position where this conflicts with your deepest desires, what seem to be the most pressing, deepest desires. And this is a trust issue. It may be the case that you think, you wrestle with the question, how could God create me this way? Or how could God create me this way and then withhold what I need in order to be happy? And that is an agonizing state of mind to be in. I want to acknowledge that. And I want to show you a few things that occur to me meditating on this passage in 1 Corinthians and my wider understanding of the Christian faith, which are important for you to hear. In order to come to a place where you can say, God, even if I don't understand everything, I trust you. I want to go your way and give my life to you and live for you. That's where all of us have to come if we want to be Christians. It it may not be the case that your issue is same-sex desire, but your issue is still, all these points are relevant to you. This is the the great challenge of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. this is the bar you have to cross. when so you are going to trust God and believe what he says? Let me show you a few things that occur to me. The first is this. And I don't think anything could be said more important than this one. <laughs> Jesus loves you. The reason you can trust him is because he loves you. I was reading David Bennett's book, A War of Loves, about his own story from being a gay activist in Australia to his journey to faith and it's a very interesting and often provocative book i find myself in disagreement with him on occasion but i think his spirit is is wonderful and i think his love for jesus is quite evident he talks about an experience in early on his spiritual journey where he, he said he used to carry a small journal with him and he went to a party in among his gay community and uh he, he wanted to ask the question, what is love? And he started to hand out his journal to all his friends at the party to answer the question. He writes this. The music drew me to dance in the middle of the crowd. I watched as my journal circulated the large side bus space where everyone was either sitting with a cocktail or enjoying the beats. And after hours of dancing, I took my journal back from a girl with a white-powdered face who was dressed like Virginia Woolf. I sat on a couch to regain my breath. Opening the moleskin journal, I saw a myriad of responses in every kind of handwriting imaginable. Most were superficial or humorous, some deliciously explicit, others deeply jaded to the point of heartbreak. And many people had sarcastically scrawled, baby don't hurt me. A few were philosophical and flowery, including a, qu- a quote from Proust and one from Plato, but no one had a real answer. Not really. It was a simple question, what is love? Was that room as lost as I felt? Those pages showed nothing but an empty abyss and I wondered if anyone really had an answer that would satisfy. His story is compelling because he realized that his heart's deepest desire was to give and experience love. And I, I wouldn't deny for a second that there is love in the gay community, and that you can experience a love in, in, all over the place, right? We agree with that. However, what he is saying is this: that there is a there is a purity of love which only Christ can offer, and that the real answer to the question "What is love?" can only really be discovered when you meet when you meet Him. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that that's hard to accept if you've got an imagination, you have a a kind of a version of Christianity in your mind in which on the one hand, there are all the people who Jesus loves who are kind of decent middle-of-the-road folk living kind of normal, bland, vanilla lives. And then you have on this side all the people who you might count yourself this way who are kind of deviants, kind of a little bit out of the ordinary or have some unusual interest or desire or some aspect of your life which you think is unacceptable. You think those are the people that Jesus doesn't love. And the weird thing is that in the Gospels, it's, it's exactly upside down to that. That that wherever Jesus went, the decent vanilla people did not seem to contemplate or come to understand just how much they needed him. And he couldn't help them as a result. But on the other hand, those folk who he encountered, who experienced a deep shame, a deep brokenness, a deep hunger and need, they're the ones whose lives he touched. I love the story in luke chapter 7 when jesus goes to the decent guy's house he's a pharisee and his name is simon and as he sat at dinner you know the normal thing is that when a guest comes to your house at dinner there were certain routine hospitable practices you would you would you would align to you would wash their feet and there would be a certain there was a certain code of conduct and simon this pharisee actually didn't do those things for jesus and it was a in many ways a shame on him that he didn't conduct himself correctly towards his honored guest. And then the dinner party is interrupted quite rudely by a woman who comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment. She breaks it. She pours it out. She starts weeping, gushing tears, heaving tears, and starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair as it's drooping down over her face. And you can imagine the oil and mess and just snot everywhere. It was quite a scene. And, you know, if you think, oh, that's just the ancient world. No, that wasn't the ancient world. People didn't do this. It it was just as weird then as it would be now. There's (laughs) nothing ordinary about this situation. Situation; it is absolutely extraordinary and that's why it's also breathtaking and beautiful. Because this woman was a known, she was labeled a sinner. But she, i 99% sure she was a prostitute. And somehow she finds acceptance with this man, Jesus. She feels loved by him. His love is fierce and pure, but it's not like the love that the world talks about, which is we just love you the way you are and you just be yourself. No, Jesus loves you more than that. He loves you in such a way that he wants to redeem you and transform your life. He is fiercely committed to you. And the proof and demonstration of it was the giving of his own life on the cross. There is no way you can question whether he loves you or not when you, when you consider him dying. There's a lot of plastic love out there, isn't there? Just be yourself, but it's not a sacrificial love. And Christ loves you. That is one reason you can trust him. Here's a second. I believe that the Bible will teach you that holiness is happiness. Now, this is a great hurdle you have to overcome if you want to commit your life to following Jesus because you realize that part of it is turning your back on all kinds of things which you think would make you happy. And particularly in this arena, think about the song, Baby, you're all that I want. When you're lying here in my arms, I'm finding it hard to believe we're in heaven. What was Brian Adams talking about? He is saying... That the experience of sexual intimacy with this person was the experience of heaven. And because we have come to believe that that is true, we think that happiness is over here. And holiness is all about anger and frowning and judgment and misery. Now, the Bible tells you a much more subtle, interesting and compelling story than that one. It tells you that sex is designed, along with many others of God's gifts, to offer a, a taste of transcendence. And you ask, well, who's transcendence? And the answer is God's. God must be overwhelmingly happy, joyful, and generous. Because he knows what pleasure is and knows how to give us joy. So the picture that holiness is associated with misery and all the good things in life, are the forbidden things, is actually a distortion of what the Bible has to say. The Bible rather says that God in himself is exquisitely and perfectly joyful and happy but he is also holy and that he has infused that reality into his creation so that in enjoying his creation, we can taste aspects of his goodness to give us desire for the real thing when we come to meet him and a part of his, his new creation eternally. However, to take his good gifts and distort them and twist them and enjoy them in the wrong ways is to experience the damaging effects of our own sinful desires and rebellion against him. There's a proverb, there's a section of the proverbs actually where it's the voice of a father talking to a son. Those early chapters of Proverbs are very compelling on the issue of sexuality, of sex and sexuality, I think, if you read them through a certain lens. Because what the, the father is saying is to his son, is saying, Listen, as an older man, you're gonna you're going you're gonna hear a lot of things out there. You're gonna there's gonna be all kinds of lies out there that want to trap you like a sticky web. And one of them is the, the danger of sexual allure. And Proverbs 5, it says, he says, the lips of a forbidden woman. And he's talking about, obviously, a, a heterosexual encounter here, but I don't think there's any reason to limit it that way. We're just talking generally about anything that is illicit. And he says, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. In other words, it is the most tantalizing, intoxicating and compelling thing to experience and meditate on and allow a temptation to grow in your mind you think I need that mm. and then the next line is but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword no sooner have you tasted than the experience turns rotten in your gut and you feel like you're being lacerated from the inside that is what sin does. That's what shame does. I think that the Christian life is the pursuit of happiness, but the reality is you cannot be happy in the fullest sense by pursuing pleasures outside of God's will. And you ask, well then how can I be happy? And and listen, my answer to you specifically, if you're somebody who is in the battle of awareness of same-sex attraction and desire. is it, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting to you that it's by imagining that you have to change your desire or orientation as we speak in our culture these days in order to then be, be a Christian. What I'm rather saying to you is that you need to understand that it's by enjoying and walking in holiness, the pursuit of holiness where you can Know the fullness of God and his blessing on your life. And this is exactly, exactly what they had experienced in Corinth when he says, listen, he lists all these things. He says, look, this is the way you used to live. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, and so on. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In other words, they had come to a place where they were, they were standing in the light, where they felt clean on the inside and on the outside, and they knew a perfect, unhindered, and unfettered relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who would save them, and there was no reason to hide from him, and that is what the Christian life says is just the beginning of the experience of happiness. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. Many of you will have heard these words. But in his amazing essay, The Weight of Glory, he talks about this challenge of our desires, how we want this, but we, but actually we ought to be wanting this, the fuller experience of happiness in God. And he says, he says if we... He says, um, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, in other words, what God wants to offer you, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. It's not like he's like, whoa, you've got too much desire. I don't know what to do with you. But he says, your problem is that your desires are too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Holiness is happiness. And Christ does want to offer you something better. Which ties in very nicely with the third point. That eternity is long and life is short. Eternity is long and life is short. Because the challenge of this issue, one of the great reasons and the obstacles that would stop you from wanting to give your life to Christ is because this desire would loom so large in your sight. And if not this, then some other desire. Remember, this is relevant to whatever you're facing if you are considering following Jesus or finding some obstacle. This thing, though, particularly can loom so large in your vision that it can feel like the most important thing in life. And you think, well, a life without fulfillment in in this area in the area of my sex life, what kind of life is that? And part of understanding Christian discipleship, and it's very difficult to overstate how important this is, a huge part of understanding Christian discipleship is the ability to put these things into perspective in the light of eternity. Whatever battle it is you're in. In a sense, that's the essence of wisdom, isn't it? And The Bible says, listen, you have a choice. You can, you can have momentary pleasure that is gone like that. Or you can have everlasting life. And you think how often we as humans are so stupid we make the wrong choices. It's part of our nature, isn't it? A moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. <laughs> you know, It's part of the way we're wired. We love instant gratification, don't we? And We often choose it over that delayed or deferred gratification, the long-term joy. You think about the man who goes to his office party, and has a, a one-night hookup with uh, a woman in the office, and you know the, the consequences of that kind of a choice. It might have been pleasurable for a moment, but the consequences can be a broken marriage and you know a retirement with your wife and the dream of of living, growing old together shattered instantly. Of having a, a, a whole and good relationship with your children, and then seeing your grandchildren, all of that vision of the future and the joy that, that could have been experienced, all of that breaking like that because of a, a momentary taste of, of foolish pleasure. And in a sense that's a, a parable or analogy of of what I'm talking about on a much bigger scale, that your life is just a brief moment, an eternity. Is where it's at. In the book of Hebrews, the author uses a um, he uses a story to illustrate this one, and uh, he says to them, well, "Make sure that no one is sexually immoral or unholy." You think, okay, I get where he's going with this. He says, like Esau. Yeah, well, in what way was Esau sexually or moral or unholy? And actually, we're not aware that he was when you read the Genesis account. But rather, what he does is he, tell, he just reminds us of a little story like Esau, which is a kind of parable of what we're talking about. He says, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And this is what we're talking about it's the difference between temporal pleasure and eternal joy. Because Esau, the story goes like this. He'd gone out to, to hunt or do whatever he did. He was um, that kind of guy. And he came home to his his, uh, his younger brother, who was more of a homebody, liked to cook. And his younger brother had prepared a stew. And Esau is ravishing. And, you know, he's gruff and he's just angry. And he's like, give me some of that food. And his brother says to him, and he's a very smart guy. And his name means uh, supplanter. and it, it, he, he is, His brother Jacob is a kind of, you know, he's, he's a crafty fellow. And he says, look, I'll give you this. If you give me your birthright. And Esau cannot see anything but the stew in that moment. And he says, okay, fine. It's a deal. Done. Eats the food. Forgets about it. Now, of course, he goes on in Hebrews and says that, you know, that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, his birthright, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And listen, what the author is telling us and what I'm trying to put across to you is this. That what's at stake when you choose what God has said no to over the choice of, of being in, in God's family is, is everything. This is what Paul's saying when he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You choose that road, you're like Esau. It's a bowl of stew. You'll enjoy it for a moment, but then it'll be gone. And you weigh that, you put that in the balance with eternity. Eternity friends, the Christian faith is unashamedly the offer of eternal life with Christ. That's what Jesus talked about half the time. You put it in the balance. You think, well, this isn't a very difficult choice, is it? It feels difficult in the moment, of course. But it isn't very difficult when you use your mind. And when the Holy Spirit empowers you to make the right call. Here's a fourth thing I want to say to you. This sin needs to be scaled down to size. Now, what I mean by this is I don't think you should minimize how serious it is in the sense that, look, if this is the one thing that would keep you from following Jesus, then this is the most important sin in your life. And the, 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 the power of it cannot be overstated. That's what Paul's saying when he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? When he starts listing things, he's saying, look, if this is you, don't you realize this is going to keep you out of the family of God? So I don't, there's no way you can minimize the the gravity of the situation when you're willing to follow a sinful lifestyle instead of choosing Jesus. But, at the same time, I want to say to you, there's a sense in which, listen, whether it's homosexuality or anything else, all of this stuff is, at the same time, they're just sins. And all of them were dealt with by Jesus. And you feel that when you're reading this passage and you realize that Paul just lists this, he just lists it in among. A bunch of other stuff. Some of it sounds more weighty to us, like adultery and idolatry, and some of it sounds a little bit more mundane, like like people who are thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers. What's a reviler? A swindler, you know? People who get a bit annoyed or people who, who cheat a little bit on their tax returns. You know. And he's like he's just he's just listing them all together and saying, "Look, sin is sin. It is at one time our greatest enemy, but it's also the thing which Jesus dealt with at the cross." and Let's not make this thing in your life a bigger deal than it needs to be if this is your thing or your friend's thing or whatever. Let's shrink it down to size. Now this has to be stated in our day and age because I think the the question of what desires you have in in your sex life have become almost definitive of who you are. And you've been duped into thinking that this is the hardest thing to turn away from. That that kind of level of self-denial it's like next to impossible. You have to be like a god or a superman to, know, to be able to control yourself. And look, what I'm trying to say to you, friends, is this. And, and this is important for you as well, Christians, if you, if you want to share the gospel with your friends who you know, may be in this lifestyle. Jesus changes people as a matter of routine. That's what Paul's saying. Such were some of you. It's like it was easy for Jesus to change their lives. He just he just did it. Such were some of you. you all of these things, I don't care what it was, but Jesus dealt with it in your life. And now look at you. He's changed you. The last point, one thing I want to just underline finally, and which will, I think uh, you'll, see, you'll hear this and feel this very much in, in the testimony that Jeremy's going to share. So you can have a higher identity than your sexual desires. <clears throat> I think this really is vital. I think it's got to be said because you know the, the issue of sexual desire has become has become something that has moved to the very center of, of the way we understand ourselves, that we, we identify and wear labels according to what ex, ex, attractions we experience. Now, I want to I say I under, that there's a sense in which we want to understand that. Certainly reading David Bennett's book, you know, it was important for him when Christians were telling him the gospel that they could understand that this was his community, that this was this were his friends, that this was the life he'd chosen. And you know, you can't you can't meet someone where they're at unless you understand where they're coming from. And this is this is huge. This has become a part of you. But at the same time, I want you to think about how how much greater Identity Christ can offer you in Himself. Christopher Yuan, who I, I quoted earlier, put it like this: He says the Bible doesn't categorise humanity fundamentally according to our sexual desires, or any other desire for that matter. Like we don't go around wearing labels about the things we want. And just because it's sexual desire doesn't mean it's more. It's so important that you have to wear that label. And there's a sense in which, listen, you look at the transition in this passage, how, what's going on in this passage. He says, there were, this, is, this is the kind of life and lifestyles that all of you guys used to live in your past. But then it's all past tense. But such, he says, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, all the power of heaven has been brought to bear on lifting you out of that lifestyle and that identity and putting you into his family. N- Labeled with the name of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God, you are now a child of God, and that is the most important thing about you when you're a Christian. Does it mean that sexual desire is going to stop being an issue? No. No. It doesn't mean that. You know, whether you experience you know, heterosexual or homosexual desire, the, the allure and attraction of temptation is always going to be a thing, right? But it, that in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is when you nurture those desires and they become sin. Sometimes God does rewire your mind and heart and there are people for whom that has been their experience. But sometimes he doesn't, but in a sense it doesn't matter because that isn't your identity anymore. Your identity is a child of God, redeemed, saved. And Christ needs to loom larger. I want to pray. I wonder actually if we could just sing one song and take communion before Jeremy shares his story. I think it would be good for us just to have a breather and let The paint dry the first layer of paint before we we hear this compelling and powerful story will you just bow your heads with me and jeremy's gonna you know really minister to us in a moment and i want us to be able to receive that but right now i let's just come to this this lord and savior and for some of you you are you're christians and you've maybe doubted the goodness of god because of the complexity of this issue at an emotional level. And Jesus would want to bring you back to himself and to remind you of his fierce love so that you trust him. So that you know, look, Lord Jesus, if you considered it worth dying for, then it mattered to you. And not just this, but whatever sin you're struggling with, the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to take that step of trust and say, look, Your way is better. I want to give my life to you afresh. So I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine. And I want us just in this moment, as we listen to the the music, that we're just going to relish Jesus together. And remember that we have been washed, that we've been sanctified, that we've been justified. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that love, love was demonstrated, proved beyond a shadow of doubt when you gave your life for us. Forgive us that we sometimes doubt that or distrust you. Bring us to a new place where despite the cost, despite the, the, the difficulty, we will be able to follow you. Amen. Amen. Yeah,
1: Lord, we thank you for that incredible grace that we have um, just heard preached about and had uh, sung to us, Lord. And I pray that as I share this story with these guys this evening, that you would um, be glorified as people hear about your grace um, in my life and many others. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm really glad to be able to share my story with you um, this evening, really because it is a story of God's incredible grace. And in one sense, um, it's quite an unusual story, and I, I don't, obviously not everybody will share the story that I have. Uh, each of our stories are unique, but in a sense, there is a common thread in all our stories, those of us who are Christians, that we've all experienced the grace of God in our lives. And in a sense, my story is just another example of that. Um, so, yeah, I want to tell you my story this evening of being gay, becoming a Christian, and everything that's happened after that. So, about the age of 11, I started to realise that I was gay. Uh, Just just as my friends were um, experiencing attraction towards girls, I realised I was experiencing attraction towards guys. This was 15, 20 years ago, so in the kind of social climate of the UK at the time, um, it's not something I was excited about. (laughs) It's not something I wanted, so to speak. um, But I recognised those were my feelings. And uh, probably by the age of about 15, I'd come out to most of my friends, I'd uh, come out to my mum, and um, explore, exploring dating, that kind of thing, um, and I've a firm conclusion about my sexuality. Um, the reactions among my friends were initially good, but um, I observed what, I, what at the time I thought was a sort of banter, and, and I kind of, you know, I was like the gay one of the group. Um, but actually looking back on it, probably it was quite a lot of bullying and humiliation, I was very fearful at the time, fearful that the knowledge of my sexuality would become something that everyone in the school wouldn't know about, and that would then change how people saw me. I was scared about how the teachers would perceive me at school. I was um, scared about how society would respond, how this would limit my career aspirations. And I was probably particularly scared of how my dad would react um, do I come from a Christian family, Jewish, Catholic, secular uh, background. Um, but my dad's socially conservative, and I knew that he would find it difficult. So as a result of that, um, I kind of developed a very strong desire for success. Because I thought, if I can just be really successful, that I can turn around to the people who've been mean to me and say, ha, I'm better than you. Um, also, I could then turn around to my dad and say, look, okay, this is, I know you're not happy about my sexuality, but at least you can kind of approve of how far I've gone in life. And the reason I share this all is because I think this is true for many in the gay community, that growing up gay is not an easy thing. You may feel like, grow up feeling unsure of themselves, feeling different, feeling a sense of shame, feeling a sense of disappointment that their uh, lives will not follow the normal trajectory. I know that was my mum's uh, great sadness at the time the Metro and the BBC and 2014 published a, uh, a survey, and there are countless surveys like this which say, I think it's 42% of LGBT youth had sought uh, medical help for some kind of um, anxiety or depression, that kind of thing, um, and a similar number had considered suicide. So growing up gay is not an easy thing, and we need to know that as we think about this as a church. When we think about what our response should be, about how we engage with the LGBT community, we need to bear in mind that, because of all the political uh, rumblings over the last few years in the UK, gay marriage, etc., etc., many outside the church have heard the church's voice on this as one of, of, of bigotry and of rejection. And so the challenge for us as Christians, when we think about engaging with our friends and family on this question, is that we need our, uh, those in the LGBT community to hear loud and clear the love of God from us, and actually that they would see that in us, that our love for them, and that that would represent the love of God for them. Actually, I think, as Andrew expressed, referring to the story of uh, the Pharisee and the prostitute, that actually Jesus is our model for this. That throughout the Gospels, Jesus is spending time and showing compassion on those whose lives are broken, and particularly uh, those outsiders and those uh, sexually immoral. I love the story in Mark 2. Uh, it talks about how um, the, the tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who, there who followed him. They feel so comfortable in his presence that they're able to recline and have a meal with him. And those of us who are Christians here tonight need to ask ourselves the question, if we think about those people whose lives don't match up to the biblical picture, do they feel comfortable to be in our presence? Do they feel comfortable to recline with us, so to speak, um, or do they feel judged by us? Actually, the, what's really interesting is they, with Jesus is he dreads that incredible line between truth and love, that they know that he loves them, but it's never at the expense of truth. And I think that's true that for, for us too, that as people see our love for them, if we have any hope of sharing the gospel, sharing this good news that Andrew has, has given us this evening with our friends and family in the LGBT community, they must know our love for them. That's an absolute prerequisite requisite that we need to know our love for them and the love of god for them so let me carry on then with my story so um in my teenage years as i was exploring my sexuality and coming to that conclusion i was also exploring the christian faith don't come from a christian family but i got hold of a gospel and was reading about uh, the life of jesus and i just found it absolutely fascinating i was drawn to the person of christ i found it that he all the stories he kept bringing back to himself i wanted them to be about me but he kept drawing attention to himself and um i just kind of slowly became more and more interested but as I uh, was exploring that fact, I was painfully aware that this may have consequences for my life. And I actually, uh, I started spending a lot of time on the internet trying to figure out what the Bible had to say about gay relationships. And this was kind of um, the heyday, This was like the late 90s, early 2000s. Like Lots of personal websites kind of coming about, like people answering these questions and, and looking into it. And um, I've had lots of perspectives, but try as I might, and I was obviously looking for a way to justify gay relationships, despite what I wanted to be the conclusion, I became reluctantly convinced uh, that the Bible was clear, that the marriage was for a man and a woman, and that sex, the only context that God uh, provided for sex was in that marriage relationship between a man and a woman. So very much the kind of conclusions that Andrew outlined for us this evening. Now, if I'm honest, uh, really, Truly, I wasn't willing to make that sacrifice to then follow Jesus because I wasn't willing to give up my, uh, the prospect of being in a relationship and the prospect of um, sexual relations, etc. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, it's a very biblical way of saying it. But I wasn't willing to give up the prospect of, of, of being celibate for the rest of my life. And so um, a bit like the rich young man who Jesus tells him to sell everything he has and then he just walks away. He says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Uh, that, was, that was kind of what I, I did at the time. So I went to university and uh, got involved in lots of different societies, trying to build this perfect CV um, to try and justify myself and experience the success that i had pinned my hopes on. But I um, got, got to the middle of my second year at uni. I was running my own business, achieving academically, achieving the success that i had dreamt of for years. And I found that actually success didn't satisfy me in the way that I had expected and hoped Actually, I was no happier than I was before. I looked around my life, and said, so I'm just as angry and insecure as ever. And actually, all the way through university, I had a wonderful Christian friend. His name's Stephen. He's my best man at my, my wedding. And he just modeled this wonderful Christ-like combination of love and truth. That He uh, showed me unconditional love. I trusted him. I never felt judged by him or ostracized by him. Um, but he also lovingly challenged me. And I mean, it, just one example of this is I was telling him about some of my friends. I was part of the, the lads. I wasn't a lad myself. I was a bit of a wannabe lad, uh, but I was, I was friends with the lads in my college. And I was saying to him, um, these guys, they're really very short termists. You know, they're not really thinking about the long term. They're not thinking about their career. You know, they're, they're, I'm building my perfect CV to, to achieve in the long term, but they're just thinking about tomorrow. And, and he said to me, I yeah, might be thinking about the long term, but what about the long, long term? What about eternal life? And it just absolutely left me with a chill. <laughs> that's one example. But so, so kind of inexplicably, in, my, in, in the middle of my second year, if you're looking at my life, that's not what you would have expected. I kind of came to the end of my tether, and I went to Stephen and said, I want to give my life to follow Jesus. And so I prayed then for Jesus to have control of my life. So what happened next? Well, um, to be honest, the first reaction was thinking, if I'm going to follow Jesus, this is going to have to change everything about my life. Meant surrendering my whole life to Him. What I did with my time, how I conducted my relationships, uh, how I worked, and how I saw myself. And so I made the decision to surrender my relationships to Jesus, and I was planning on being celibate and single for the rest of my life. That meant no to relationships, no to one-off encounters, no to pornography, all sorts of different things. And this was deeply countercultural. I was living in what I think would be described as a a sex saturated house. Um, FHM magazine no longer exists, but it was one of those lad mags, and that was the, the kind of wallpaper of our living room. Um, well, not exclusively, but it was... It was, <laughs> it was, it was uh, I won't go on, but just say, <laughs> just say that when I made the choice to, to say, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm not going to have sex, and, not, and everything else like that, my friends just thought I was absolutely mental. I thought I'd never be able to do it. In fact, a little while later, when I told my family about this... Um, and I was kind of resolutely committed to this life of celibacy, my family found it very difficult. They said, uh, you've got to live out your sexuality, you've got to embrace this part of you, and you, you can't deprive yourself of a relationship. I've also found this deeply um, kind of ironic, because this was my brother 10 years previously had kind of found, well, he, he jokingly, he said, I, I kicked the gay out of you. Like, it was a joke. It wasn't a real thing. But like, he'd you know, kind of reg- found it difficult. And then, like, 10 years later, after I become a Christian, they were now saying, no, you've got to embrace this. And I was like, I'm, I'm the wrong side of culture on both times. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I wasn't, it wasn't okay for me to, to do this, and now it's not okay for me to not do this kind of thing. Um, but really, I think that this taps into what I think is, like, often the, the, the central reason why people find the Christian teaching on this subject so difficult. is to say... Um, they wonder whether it's unfair or harmful or just simply impossible to deprive yourself of a sexual relationship. And really the question is, is Jesus asking too much? Now we've talked about the wonderful biblical place for singleness in the first week, and last week we talked about celibacy as well, so I won't go over that, but it's clear that the Bible has a very high view of singleness. And, um, and Jesus himself, the perfect man who ever lived, was not, uh, did not have a sexual relationship so it's clearly not necessary, it's not essential to what it means to live a full, flourishing human life. But there is a cost to singleness. And there is a cost to the person choosing to follow Jesus, uh, who is exclusively attracted to the same sex. It might mean ending a relationship, it might mean ending uh, the relationship they're in, or the relationships, the prospect of having a relationship. It also might mean the rejection from their community. And the call to follow Jesus actually will always have a call, will always include to it the call to deny yourself, to lay down your life and to receive the new life that he offers. Jesus says this, If if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the call to follow Jesus will involve a death to your old life To putting some things down in order to receive the new life that he brings. For someone who's attracted to the same sex, it uh, it will mean uh, involving laying down the the prospect of marriage and a significant relationship. But actually, for all of us, it will involve laying down something different. Think of the Muslim in a country like Pakistan who's considering following Jesus but knows that if they follow Jesus, it may well mean that their life is at risk. Or think about the Hindu in the Orissa state in India who knows that if they were to follow Jesus, their whole family would ostracize them and they'd be rejected by their community. Actually, there's always a cost to following Christ. And perhaps people who are coming from a gay background or from other cultures have a greater appreciation of that than, than some of us who've grown up in this culture and in Christian families. And yet the message of the Bible is it's always worth it. In Mark 10, Peter tells Jesus they've left everything to follow him, but this is his response to them. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, he's talking about right now, as well as the future reality that Andrew spoke about, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is promising a new life. And with it, there's a richness that comes with that. I think he's at least talking about a new community, a new family. If Christianity has a prosperity gospel, I think this is it. That as you say goodbye to, I think for a person who's uh, coming from the LGBT community, uh, saying goodbye to one form of intimacy. Actually, Christ is inviting you into a new form. Intimacy with him, but also with the new family of God. And new brothers, new sisters, new mother, new father. And a question for us, as we consider this question as a community, is, is our community deep enough such that someone comes into this community and says, I've said no to other intimacies, but I found a new intimacy in here that is far exceeds that. Wouldn't that be incredible? And this actually was totally my experience. I died to my old life and the prospect of a, of a loving relationship, but found something far greater. Now, first and foremost, it's the love of Christ that I encountered, that Andrew spoke about, in my bedroom, on my own, praying, reading the Bible. I experienced such an incredible love of the Father, and that was a really healing thing for me, and I'll come on and explain more about that. But I also experienced that same love in the relationships in the church that I then uh, became part of. These new friendships far surpassed anything I'd experienced in the world Two particular friends, um, Rich, who, who worked with a Christian organization called Agape, so he's basically employed to be my friend, and Stephen, the guy who led me to faith. Um, they loved me in such a way that I'd never been loved before. Bear in mind, for, uh, i spent much of my life being humiliated and mocked, but in Christians, I met people who loved me unconditionally and joyfully accepted me as their peer, and that was life-changing. So I experienced a celibate single life for five years, and yet I experienced a richer and more uh, deeper and satisfying life in Christ than I ever had previously. So in joy, Christ calls us to die to our old lives, to renounce our idols and to follow him. But we can promise anyone, including the gay person who gives up their relationship and possibly their community, that it's totally worth it. So what happened next? Well, uh, God took me on a journey of transformation. As I understood my heavenly father's love for me, I no longer felt the need to prove myself to the world, to get the acceptance through all these achievements. So I ended up giving up my business and my other activities, started to live a more balanced life. I was kind of uh, experienced peace for the first time. I was changed so much that my housemates were like, who are you and what have you done with the guy we used to live with? As I understood his love and his grace, he started to take away my shame. I started to realize my true identity. He started to change my behavior. I was less angry, less insecure, um, less arrogant. I started to experience God's sanctification, his work in my life. Now, this is perhaps hard to believe, but as part of that, God even started to change the way I saw women. I started to have attraction to women for the first time, uh, I think the best way of describing it is a little bit like puberty. I started to notice curves and and things that I hadn't noticed previously. Um, Also started to uh, grow in my understanding of my masculinity. Bear in mind, I would argue that I had my masculinity kind of robbed from me. Like I'd never been really considered one of the guys. And as I grew in my understanding of who I was in Christ, I understood that I was a man made in God's image. And that that was a reality about me regardless of kind of who I was attracted to. And this meant I didn't need to look to other men to complete me in a way that I had previously. This is obviously a much shortened and slightly bastardized version of a much longer uh, redemption journey. So I started to be attracted to guy, girls, but still experienced attraction towards guys, and that's still um, experienced attraction to both genders today. So, what is the goal for Christians who experience same sex attraction? Is it heterosexuality? Is that the goal? Well, I would argue absolutely not. That actually the the goal for every Christian is to grow in Christlikeness, to grow in holiness, to become more of the person that God's called them to be. That this is the goal of the Christian life. But actually as a key part of that, I would argue that identity change is included. What I mean by that is, um, you know, we read these verses in 1 Corinthians 6. We want to live in verse 11 and not verse 9 or 10. Such were some of you. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. That is the reality that, I, that we live in now. So, before we talk about any attraction change that I experienced, the first thing that I experienced is a change in my identity. Actually, I became, I said, my primary identity is that I am a child of God, and that defines everything about my life. I mean, I stopped walking around saying I'm gay, I started to experience, I would say I'm a Christian who experiences same sex attraction. But actually, I, I would just argue generally, the idea of identifying through your sexual attractions is a flawed one. Primarily, primarily, I would argue this because just like attractions come and go. They're changeable. They're all sorts of different things. Actually, the, the much more solid grounding of who you are is who you are in Christ. We can talk more about that in the Q&A. I would also argue that there's no guarantee, and certainly please don't hear from my story, that I'm saying this is a normative experience that this was my experience, this is what God did in my life, but we would never promise change in attractions. And actually what we promise is that every Christian in the power of the Holy Spirit is able to say no to temptation and to walk in faithfulness to Christ. But whilst knowing that we will face temptation to our dying day. However, every Christian is on a journey of Sanctification. And transformation through the Holy Spirit. For some, this will involve some kind of healing in this area, a change in attractions. My experience is other guys like uh, Sean Doherty, who's uh, about to lead a theological college in Bristol, um, experienced attraction towards guys all his life. Actually, would say he's only really ever been attracted to one woman, his wife, Gabby. They've got four children together. There's lots of other stories like that. Rosario Butterfield, who was a, a lesbian English professor at Syracuse University in the U.S., but there will be others, not like Sean Docherty or uh, Sean or Rosario or myself, who live beautiful countercultural lives of single celibacy. And ultimately, these lives will point to the awesomeness of God as something better than anything else. One lady, uh, Anne, who works for Living Out, which is a great organization on this subject uh, based in the UK, um, she said since she became a Christian about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, she says she's still attracted towards women exclusively and hasn't experienced any change in attractions, but chooses to live a single life because she loves God more than anyone or anything else. A well, wonderful testimony, and there are many like her. At the heart of both options is an embrace of an identity in Christ rather than in who they're attracted to and a choice to submit to God in every area of their lives. Some would say that it's dangerous to propose or encourage a change in attractions, and I would agree with them on that. Um, I certainly wouldn't promise that, but I do think the power of the cross is big enough for everything, including our sexual sin and brokenness. For some, we'll see that transformation in our lives today. For some, that will only be at uh, the full coming of the kingdom and Jesus' return. Finally, I should just tell you briefly about my relationship uh, with my wife, with Jen. Primarily, I think we talked about dating a couple of weeks ago to give you confidence that to any of you who are approaching dating, that we all come with baggage into our dating relationships, and perhaps mine was more than most, but, um, but actually that should give you a confidence to be able to approach this. Um, it's also a testimony to God's grace and, uh, and, quite frankly, to my wife. I was very nervous. Jen was effectively my first girlfriend. I was worried about the stories of guys who get married and later life come out and get divorced, that kind of thing. Obviously, like I said, I'd already come out, so that was less of an issue. Um, but I was definitely nervous. Um, I told Jen very early on, one month in, and she was amazing. She said, it doesn't change anything. I continued to have uh, major fears about uh, throughout the first nine months of our relationship. I had to learn to trust God with our relationship and my feelings and, and really whatever happened with the future. I had to be able to put that into God's hands. Um, and just in my initial discipleship, my brothers around me, my community, were absolutely essential in discipling me uh, through my feelings and my fears. And God gave Jen a lot of grace for my brokenness and healing journey. But we found ourselves growing in attraction in every sense of the word throughout our relationship and increasing the conviction that God had called us together and started to dream about serving him uh, together. We've been married for nearly four years, and without going into too much detail, we're happily married in every sense of the word. I I think you get the gist. (laughs) Um, She wasn't in the morning when I said that, and she'd obviously be embarrassed. Anyway, um, the conclusions then. I think a few key conclusions I want to draw out for us. First of all, the gospel, the offer of God's love and forgiveness, an invitation to God's banquet, is for all people. No one should count themselves out from this, whatever their sexual attractions. And what a deep tragedy it is that we live in a culture that many have. We are called to display and tell people about this love to all people, including our LGBT friends and neighbours, for those of us who follow Jesus and do experience same-sex attraction, this is not primarily who we are. The Bible doesn't define us in this way, and neither should we. If you have attraction to the same sex, Jesus is calling you not to live those out in sexual relationships, instead calling us to lay that possibility down because a celibate life of faithfulness is far better, far richer, far more satisfying than a life without Christ. The goal for the same-sex attracted person is not heterosexuality, but the goal, like all of us, is to glorify God with his life, to faithfully follow Jesus and to become more like him. And finally, our dream for Grace London, for this church, is that we would be a redeemed community of saints. That actually, we'll all come from different backgrounds, different stories. We'll be like the One Corinthians uh, community or looking around saying, yeah, that was you and that was you. But together, we would celebrate that we are now in the verse 11 reality, that we have been washed, that we've been justified, and that we have been sanctified. And we can glorify that, that we all come from different places, but together we are the people of God, made holy by him, washed clean by him. Praise God.